Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 174th video cast, 164th podcast for the week ending February 16th, 2023. We'll kick it off with media, and then we've got quite a bit of exciting stuff to cover this week uh, and some bombshells, uh, which I'm sure you're all wondering about. So we'll get right to it. So, first and foremost, I'd like to thank Mike Teak and Paul Vigna for having me on public uh, this week to discuss. I wanted to cut that into the video cast, but we've got too much to cover, so do listen to that on your own time. It really gives the overview of what, where I'm thinking, what I'm thinking about the market, and I think you'll find that very valuable in a short 10 minutes. I uh, want to thank uh, Johan Cherian and Sruthi Shankar for including me in their Reuters article yesterday, and want to thank Manya Saini for including me in her Reuters article this week. Tomorrow at 3 p.m., I'll be on Fox Business, The Claim and Countdown with Cheryl Cassoni in studio. So check that out if you're around. Uh, then on Monday, I'll be speaking live at The Money Show, which is in at the New York Marriott at the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, you can go to moneyshow.com for more information about that uh, and check it out. I believe my time slot is like 1 to 2 p.m. or something along those lines. Uh, you can see the schedule online. And then on Tuesday, I'll be in studio uh, with Dave Briggs and Shauna Smith at 3 p.m. for Yahoo Finance, so tune in then. And the bombshell of the day uh, was Charlie Munger in the Daily Journal meeting yesterday uh, came out. The headline was, he says, uh, Baba was his biggest mistake. And then he goes on to say, that China is great because you can buy, um, let's see, you can buy better companies at cheaper value in China, which is why he's in China. So he, he does contradict himself. But I think what he's referring to when he says it's the worst mistake he ever made was uh, he bought at $230. So if you look at this chart here, uh, he was buying this uptrend, uh, extrapolating out that it would persist. And he bought here a, a huge chunk at 230, and he did buy a second chunk at like 165 on leverage. And I think the Alibaba, not the Alibaba, the Daily Journal board uh, voted against that, and they unwound that position. So his basis is up at 230 dollars. Uh, I think he's still going to make a lot of money on the, on the position, but I think that's what he was referring to. He he bought it wrong. The other thing that he emphasizes in the Daily Journal, and you can just go to YouTube.com, Charlie Munger J Daily Journal meeting February 15, 2023, and watch the whole thing, because there's always a lot of wisdom in watching Charlie, is he's, he refers to the e-commerce business only, and he says that you know, it's a retailer, there's competition, and then he goes on to say, uh, we can buy better companies at uh, lower values in China, so we're willing to take the political risk. Uh, so he's sticking with it, and you saw their most recent filing, they haven't sold any shares, so they still have all their Alibaba up at $230. Um, so the other thing that he says is, uh, an invasion in Taiwan is a long way off, uh, and he points to Russia, Ukraine. And, uh, the last thing I want to cover is, is his thoughts on leverage. But first off, let's go to the China talk. Uh, right now we're going to cut to the clip. Key 
He's also asking about some of the situations with Alibaba. He said, how should investors view geopolitical events in regards to their investment in foreign countries? How do you look at the situation of the recent Chinese spy balloon in regards to the Alibaba investment? Well, of course, it was a very interesting thing. Jack Ma was a dominant capitalist in Alibaba. And one day he got up and made a public speech where he basically said the Communist Party is full of malarkey. They don't know their ass from their elbow. They're no damn good and I'm smart. And of course, the Communist Party didn't particularly like his speech. And pretty soon he just sort of disappeared from view for months on end. And now he's out of BYD. It was pretty stupid. It's like poking a bear in the nose with a sharp stick. It's not smart. And, and Jack Ma got way out of line by popping off the way he did to the Chinese government. And of course it hurt Alibaba. And, but I regard Alibaba as one of the worst mistakes I ever made. In, in thinking about Alibaba, I got charmed with the idea of their position on the Chinese Internet. And I didn't stop to realize they're still a goddamn retailer. It's it's going to be a competitive business, the internet. It's not going to be a cakewalk for everybody. Just about China in general, I had a lot of questions that came in regarding that. I'll ask this one from Wilco, uh, Wilco Schutzendorf. Um, it's coming in from Walnut Creek, California, who just said, previously you stated that despite certain shortcomings, China was generally moving in the right direction. However, with the recent actions taken by the Chinese government, such as capriciously punishing technology and educational companies, declining to import effective COVID vaccines, escalating threats towards Taiwan, do you still maintain that China is a viable investment option for foreign capital, or is China experiencing a similar regression as Russia has seen under Putin's leadership that culminates in the invasion of Taiwan? Well, that's a very good question, of course. But, but I would argue that the chances in a big confrontation from China have gone down, not up, because of what happened in the Ukraine. I think that the Chinese leader is a very smart, practical person. And it doesn't... Russia went into the Ukraine as it looked like a cakewalk. I don't think Taiwan looks like such a cakewalk anymore. I think it's off the table in China for a long, long time. And I think that helps the prospects of investors who invest in China. And the other thing that helps in terms of the China prospects are that you can buy the best, you can buy better, stronger companies at a cheaper valuation in China than you can in the United States. So you're getting the extra risk can be worth running given the extra value you get. That's why we're in China. It isn't like we prefer being in some foreign country. Of course, I'd rather be in Los Angeles right next to my house. You know, it would be more convenient. But I can't find that many investments, you know, right next to my house. And we're back. Um, so, you know, basically here, what you're seeing is opinion follows trend. And that holds true for the retail investor that just got it, their account started yesterday uh, and the most seasoned incredible investors of all time. 
that they lose their faith as, uh, you know, in this case, that you know, the buy, it was just bought absolutely wrong at 230 and there wasn't a material average down. I mean, if he had played it right based on the business that that is in, he'd probably have a basis of about 120, 125, and then he'd make a triple over the next few years. But the key thing I want to emphasize is his analysis is surprisingly simplistic. Uh, we never bought Alibaba on the basis of the e-commerce business. We do think now with the consumption-led stimulus uh, that the that Alibaba is going to do exceptionally well and is going to outshine its competitor peers in e-commerce. But our our base case is predicated exclusively on the Ali Cloud, which has 38% share. The entire cloud business and the digitization of China is going to triple over the next few years to 2025, and we believe that can add about 66% more of operating income to Alibaba than it had even here uh, when it was trading at $319. So our base case assumption is that e-commerce remains flat. I think that is an overly conservative assumption, particularly because Xi has figured out I'm not going to keep building ghost towns and bridges that collapse because they've never used, especially with our declining population. We're going to put all the stimulus this cycle into consumption, and Alibaba is the biggest toll taker to consumption in China moving forward. Now, it's it's ironic that, you know, Munger would be the final one to capitulate uh, based on the price action. And you can see here we discussed... You have these first rallies and then the shakeouts and then a move up and a test back. First rallies, shakeout, move up and a test back. And we've been talking about low 100s to mid 90s to hopefully be a final shakeout for the late money who chased up to 120 that didn't believe it when everyone was calling it uninvestable. So we had the first rally, the shakeout, the run up, and now I think we're in this uh, next shakeout phase before the parabolic move up. So here we had the shakeout, shakeout, parabolic move up. And I think we're gonna, that's going to take us down to the mid-90s, somewhere in here, where you have all of this support and, and institutional defense. Uh, and then the next move is going to take off without people. And I, and I don't think you're going to uh, see any relief until uh, 180, 190. The other thing that's interesting is, um, so we never get trapped by expert bias. Um, you know, we weren't interested when Munger, um, uh, it certainly caught our attention when Munger bought at 230, but, uh, we bought for completely different reasons and completely different prices. And, you know, down here when he's getting all pessimistic, uh, is when, when we did the bulk of our buying. So, uh, so that's what we're going to keep doing. And we encourage you, you should take no expert bias, neither from Charlie Munger nor Warren Buffett nor Tom Hayes, nor anyone else, uh, you you can get ideas from people like that and then do your own work. And then once you have confidence is when you can sit through these type of things with perfect equanimity. If you're a buyer at 100 and it goes against you, you're adding in the hole versus selling in the hole and understanding the nor normal psychology of a move. But we're, we're more optimistic on Alibaba than we've ever been before. Uh, even if, uh, if Munger feels regret for buying it up too high and not being able to bring his basis down either because of, uh, Daily Journal's board, uh, or his whole cold feet. The other thing that was interesting was he did acknowledge the invasion of Taiwan is a long way off. Many people thought that, uh, because, uh, Berkshire Hathaway sold Taiwan Semiconductor this week, uh, that they must have some edge that China is going to invest Taiwan. 
let me tell you something very clearly. If Warren Buffett had an edge that China was going to invade Taiwan, he'd be selling a hell of a lot more than $4 billion of Taiwan Semiconductor, and there is no way in hell he would be buying more Apple. He's 100% invested in equities, so, uh, so, so don't draw that extrapolation. That's Todd or Ted doing a trade. They're up 60% in three months on Taiwan Semiconductor. Probably just want to ring the register and, and wait for better opportunities. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really interesting was Munger is famous for his ladies, liquor, and leverage, the three killers. And he slipped in the, in this interview yesterday and he said, uh, just, just FYI, uh, uh, when we were running our partnerships, um, we ran with leverage. I ran with leverage. Oh, and by the way, Warren Buffett ran with leverage, who has consistently said never use leverage. And, uh, we don't run with leverage, but we do use options to take positions that can be doubles and turn them into, uh, uh, triples or quadruples based on how we do long dated spreads and long dated, uh, premium, uh, for a percentage of our allocation. So we covered that last week. Uh, how we would think about certain things uh, can be up to 10, 20 or, or more percent of the position. So if we're wrong, we come out whole because the equity works over time. And if we're right, we can we can really add a lot of juice. But we quantify and we know our risk going in. We don't like margin uh, for margin's sake. And and with some accounts that are uh, non-taxable, that are uh, can't run leverage, uh, that makes uh, perfect sense. And for taxable, uh, we follow the same protocol. So um so that was that. Let's run a couple of these clips about leverage. I think you'll find them comical. I, I also think it's very important because people say to me, oh, well, you know, uh, Munger and Buffett only buy high, the highest quality stocks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what got them to where they are versus what they do when they're running hundreds of tr- billions of dollars is a completely different story. When they had small amounts of capital, number one, they were running a little leverage. Number two, they were they were doing some net nets. They were doing these special situation turnarounds. They were doing all this thing, which got them enough capital to get control of Berkshire, to get control of uh, insurance company. Uh, National Indemnity was the first one for $8 million or whatever it was, uh, which gave them leverage in the form of float. So, you know, I was looking at an insurance company for a friend of mine last night um, uh, to get control of capital. And it was like a 40, I'll just, I'll just, uh, it was less than a hundred million dollar market cap trading at a dis- uh, 50% discount to book. Uh, you could probably get control of the thing for a few million bucks. And they have $300 million of investable assets. That's leverage because... If you, and, and by the way, their, their book was, was, was returning 3% on that $300 million. So you get control of an asset like that. You get a more normalized 8 to 12% because you juice up the amount of equities like, like Buffett has done over time. Uh, and that 30 million drop into the bottom line, uh, is meaningful. And, uh, and that's how you can really get leverage. So Buffett has always run leverage. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is leverage because if you look at the amount of investable assets in the insurance portfolio, which they run as cost-free capital because they have underwriting discipline relative to the market cap, it's orders of magnitude larger. So if you're getting a small return on the large insurance portfolio in terms of book value to the underlying equity, it's monstrous. So um, uh, I think these two clips are going to give you some insight that uh, 
number one, we're all human and no one's perfect. Uh, I was just shocked that <laughs> Munger was like, yeah, we use tons of leverage because for 40 years they've all been saying we never use any type of leverage. And I almost used to be like, yeah, I use a little leverage with options. You know, well, Buffett doesn't. Well, okay, so Buffett didn't. I, I didn't buy Baba because Munger bought Baba and I, and I, I, I use long dated spreads not because Buffett does, because Tom Hayes does. So, <laughs> so there we are. Uh, take a listen. Charlie, this question comes from Michael Gallagher. He says, according to company filings, it appeared that Alibaba shares were purchased with leverage. And when the stock price fell last year, he was seemingly forced to sell, he being you. Can you ask Charlie to confirm that it was bought with leverage? And if so, why would he do that as it seems to go against his philosophy? I got several questions that were similar to that. Well, uh, yes, it's, it's true. Uh, I operated with no leverage for long stretches of my old age and Warren's the same way and and recently I did use a little bit of leverage here and in another place because the opportunities were so ridiculously good I thought it was desirable to do that so that's you're right it's unusual for us but we 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 did find a few things and by the way if you go back early in my career I use some leverage. I, I sometimes ask myself a mental question. I say, what is the appropriate percentage you sh- of your net worth you should put it in the stock if you think it's an absolute cinch? Well, if you're the kind of fellow who's right and you, when you think something is a cinch, the answer is 100% or maybe 150%. But nobody in that nobody teaches people to think that way in finance. But but if the opportunity is great enough, the logical answer is a hundred percent, or maybe two hundred percent. Somebody else wrote in, and I don't have the email in front of me at the moment. But he wrote in, um, c- quoting you, where where you said the three things that ruin people are ladies, liquor, and leverage. So why would you use leverage when you You're know right. that's one of the three things that can destroy somebody? Well, I used a little on my way up, and so did Warren, by the way. The Buffett Partnership used leverage regularly every every year of its life. And and Munger using a little leverage at the Daily Journal Corporation. So is, is you leverage... I use that leverage to buy BYD. You can argue that's the best thing I've ever done for the Daily Journal. So is, is leverage the, the least evil of the three L's? I think most people should avoid it, but maybe... Not everybody need, need play by those rules. I have a friend who says, the young man knows the rules and the old man knows the exception. And we're back. So uh, I hope that was helpful. And you can get that uh, uh, we're all human beings. And uh, it, it was interesting to see some of those contradictions. But look, these are still two of my heroes. And I wouldn't be anywhere that I am without their teachings over the 40 years. Uh, and you take them all. You adopt it to your own style. You adopt it to your own strengths. You adopt it to your own interests. And we all have our own special edges. There's some things that I do better. There are many more things that they do better. Uh, and, and some of my other heroes, et cetera. So, um, moving right along, I uh, want to, uh, uh, thank, by the way, I want to thank a few people. And I know some of you don't want to be named. Uh, I want to thank my friends over at, MRB, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, 
and RBC for providing uh, some very helpful data for us uh, to share and to to help everyone out. Uh, this one is from Bank of America. This talks about the auto SAR, annualized SAR in January spiked up huge. Uh, light vehicle sales increased 4.1% year on year at an annualized rate of 157 that's well above 13.7 in 2022. Uh, we, you know, they're saying that, you know, curb your enthusiasm, 14.3. 14.3 would be fine. I talked to some people that are more on the ground, and they're more optimistic than even I am. They're talking 15s. This at 15.7. I could see how 15s could work out, especially when you start to get the dealer incentives and the 0% APRs that are come down the pike which we're going to cover in this week's article of the week. But I think more important than anything else, and we're talking about Cooper Sander now, uh, is this table here. Consumer confidence versus U.S. new auto sales. Critical. And if you remember, through you know, we bought this on the basis of this was just a normal cycle uh, and that you would see this start to trough just like it does every single cycle. But the correlation to consumer confidence is critical. And consumer confidence bottomed in the summer when inflation peaked. And I've said over and over in our podcast that inflation and consumer confidence are tied at the hips. And as inflation continues to roll over, despite what were hotter than expected numbers this week, here is the trend. Here's core PPI that everyone was up in arms over today. But look at the trend. It's rolling over every single month. You know, sometimes a picture is a thousand words. This is going in the right direction. And the second thing is CPI earlier this week. It's going down. Did it go down as fast as it went down the previous month? No, but it's going down in the right direction. And as this keeps coming down, consumer confidence is going to keep going up. Dealer incentives are going to go up. And that's why I think that my optimistic friends at 15 million SAR uh, SAAR for this year could could absolutely be right. Uh, moving right along, I thought this was interesting uh, from a guy named Todd Sohn. Uh, he said, it's rare for a sector to double its index weight in such a short period of time uh, as energy has. You know, everyone is super excited on energy. So industrials from 1978 to 1980 went from 5% of the S&P to 11%. Over the next three years, it, it flatlined. Staples went from 10 to 18%. Over the next three years, it went back down to 10%. This was from 84 to 86, then 87 to 89. Healthcare went from 6 to 12 in two years. And then the next two years, it went back to 8%. Tech in 97 went from 12 to 29%. Then over the next few years, it went from 21% to 14%. And now energy went from 2 to 5%. The question is, does it flatline? Does it go up or does it come back down? Uh, very small sample size, but I thought that was interesting because there is kind of, uh, you know, a thought maybe it could go to 10%, but this points to, um, you know, may, maybe you, you have to really be selective picking your spots. And many of you know, I've not, I've just been, uh, I was super bullish on energy in 2020 when it was trading negative. Uh, and then we sold a bunch, uh, early and mid last year. Uh, and we've been agnostic ever since. We are, there are some natural gas that we'll start to get interested in. We'll talk about later. 
but I think you have to be very selective here moving forward. This is from Nautilus. Uh, 10 consecutive closes above one-year moving average. Uh, and here it says, after the signals, the average one-year return is 16%, two-year return is 25%. So these are just data, not causal, coincident, but worth, worth noting. Um, next is shelter is now 43%. This is from Seth Golden. 43% of core CPI, the highest ever weighting to core CPI. When the lag components hit, and we've been talking about this owner's equivalent rent, and by May and June, inflation's going to collapse, uh, the bumpy ride ends like a hammer driving a nail into a board, and there's no question about that. This is going to normalize, and we're going to see this collapse. And by the way, this was Seth Golden via Fundstrat, uh, Tom Lee's shop. Uh, I also thought this was really valuable. This was what we talked about late last year. No one wanted discretionary uh, tech or consumer uh, communication services. They've all been the top performers. I like this ratio chart that he points. And it, just looking at the ratio chart, which we did put a lot of these out towards the end of the year, you could see how clear it was, uh, how overdone this was. And that usually leads to rallies. And, and that's been the case here. So we'll run some ratio charts next year when we have some uh, next year, next week when we have some time. Let me make a note of that uh, and see what now is in the oversold position. And I have an idea that will probably be some REITs in there and some other things that we could take advantage of uh, for our 2023 vintage. Uh, next is, uh, uh, by the way, you know, a lot of people, it's funny. This one person emailed me like, thanks for the triple in CPS. We want more. Uh, you got to give me a little break. Number one, uh, CPS is just starting. Uh, so there's there's a lot more juice in there over the next couple of years is is our view. And number two, um, uh, first off, grateful for the new money coming in this week. Um, you know, that it takes a few days to get applications approved and then the money comes in. I've got to get new clients that have been coming in positioned in everything. Uh, and then we can also start to explore new names as the research is completed and, uh, and we're ready to go out public with that. But, uh, I'm paid. Uh, very nicely for my intellectual property by my clients. When I earn the money only, we charge no management fee, only performance. Uh, but you know, they get the first benefit of the intellectual capital and that's what they're paid. That that's what they're paying for. They're paying for gains and gains are a function of that intellectual capital. So everyone, all the new money gets positioned, all the existing money gets to add what they want. And then we're happy to share some of our research, uh, over time to, to be helpful. And, and I think many of you have benefited from that. Uh, over the years. Uh, this is a great thing also from Seth Golden, a uh, ratio chart between transports and utilities. He's showing the rate of change here and what happens next. I mean, it's, it precedes massive rallies when transports uh, come out of a lull and, and the, you know, start to dramatically outperform utilities, which are defenses. And those are usually the beginning of big rallies. And we're in the exact same situation right now. Uh, Carl Quintanilla, BlackRock president, Rob Capito said a massive flow into bond markets is underway with investors now able to get higher returns, including the magic number of 7% in some instances than they have for years. We're going to talk about why that massive crowd herd uh, may be the exact wrong way to run. Uh, and uh, we'll get into that in, in the article in just a second. And finally, this is from Ryan Dietrich. His Valentine's Day indicator when the the uh, S&P is up nearly 
when the S&P is up 7.5% year-to-date by Valentine's Day, the average gain uh, in the remainder of the year is another 11%. Uh, so it's just more indicators. Some things that we focused on this week in terms of uh, articles of the week and what we were reading. Shipping rates will probably dip below pre-pandemic levels. Barclays warns this is all inflation. Uh, here's USA Today. Inflation could ease faster than the Fed believes, reducing the rate, the need for rate hikes, easing recession risk. Uh, junk bonds, junk loan market shrugs off economic worries. Uh, this was fortunate. This is how Cooper Standard was able to get refinanced and how we've got a triple so far and more on the way. And next, um, Warren Buffett's preferred equity allocation is 100%. Why Berkshire CEO hates bonds. So while everyone is crowding into bonds, Warren is <laughs> crowding into stocks. And I would bet with him every day over the crowd. Uh, part of the reason is uh, Munger covered yesterday is because of inflation. Bonds do horribly in inflation environments. Equities do fantastic, uh, do better over time. Uh, and you can read the, the note there. Amazon and other quality stocks have been hit hard. They could be buys. I actually like these poor, four picks. This is Barron's Jacob Soninshine. He's a great uh, author. Most of them are. Barron's is just phenomenal. Uh, he's quoting a Morgan Stanley piece. They talk about Amazon, which we've talked about extensively. Match is interesting. That's it. That's uh, on as a trade in the trading service. Snowflake, we're, we got to do more work on. I can't get my mind around the valuation, but some smart guys are in it. Obviously, you're betting on the jockey and the growth story, the manana story. Uh, that I probably would just pass on because I'm, you know, that goes in my two hard box and centene, same type of thing in the trade service for, for a shorter term. These have all gotten oversold, but I like that article. Uh, Spinoffs usually outperform their parent companies, Goldman Sachs, research finds. This was made popularized by Joel Greenblatt in You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, which is a fantastic book for anyone in new in the markets that is not familiar with hedge funds. He goes through the research on all these special situations from warrants to leaps to spinoffs. If you haven't read that, that is kind of basic book that uh, that goes into this. so this, there's nothing there's no new discovery from Goldman Sachs anyone in the business has known that for 20 years but what is new from Goldman Sachs is that there are going to be a lot of new spin-offs this year uh, if you look at Kindrel which was an IBM spin-off uh, I played golf with a guy who uh, said you know I should take a look at it over the summer I passed and you know it's, it's starting to move nicely uh, it's you know we this will be a core theme for us this year is finding high quality spinoffs because they do outperform and I think it's by twenty percent over their parent over the following twelve to twenty four months. I got to pull the green black book off of my shelf and find that out. Um, emerging by the way, if any of you are working at Goldman Sachs, I know we have a lot of people on our list from Goldman Sachs, and you have that report with the updated research, please send it to me. You can reach me through the website or just uh, email info at hedgefundtips.com. That would be helpful to the entire podcast, and then I can cover some of that data. Next, uh, merging Marley stalls on concerns Fed will keep raising rates. So here's all we have going on. It's This is simply a counter-trend rally. If you look at all of the dollar counter-trend rallies, 
you know, you should get a pop-up close to this, you know, maybe as high as 106. That will put some weight on China. It'll put some weight on emerging markets. I don't think we'll go that high this time, maybe 105. Everyone will get caught offside saying, oh, that's the end of the dollar weakness, now dollar strength. They'll all jump uh, back in out of emerging markets. They'll get flushed. All the new money that ran in in the last two months will get flushed, just like we're seeing in China. And then you'll see a continuation of the trend and the dollar will continue to remain subdued. Same thing with bonds. You know, everyone's worried about those reports. But if you actually look at the data, picture is worth a thousand words, which we covered, uh, you'll see that the trend is correct and it continues to go down. And when those heavy weighted components collapse in May and June, it's all over. So, uh, you know, uh, maybe we have one, we certainly have one more 25 basis points. We might have two, but by June, it might collapse so precipitously that the Fed goes into pause mode. And for those of you rooting for cuts, we're not rooting, we're not in the cut camp. You may get a cut in the next, you know, late at the end of the year into next year, but you want the economy to remain strong enough that they can keep rates elevated at four and a half to five percent uh, for the next handful of years, like they did from 95 to 99, and it was one of the best bull runs in history. Uh, so maybe one cut, maybe two cuts over the next, you know, year or two, but if they start cutting precipitously, it's because the economy is rolling off a cliff and the lag effect hit them. I think based on what we're seeing with the jobs numbers, with the labor force participation rate, with everything else, they can run inflation above trend at 3 to 5%, keep talking 2%, keep rates, use it as a justification to keep rates elevated after they've paused and let the economy run hot and, uh, and inflate away our debt to GDP from 120 down to 60, just like they did in 1948 to 1953. Even this bond, this is a counter trend rally. You've come out of the bottom. You know, you could draw a line here and this would be an whatever inverted head and shoulders. You do a measured move. This probably has legs to, you know, 19 plus 19. So, you know, maybe 129 before it's, before it's over. So, uh, keep an eye on that. Uh, this is the most crowded trade is long China stocks as Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey. Why I pulled this up is I want you to see the inflows that came in. So this was everyone selling in the hole and then uh, no one bought all the way up to year end. After they were up 80%, all the money started coming in the last four weeks. So what has to happen? They've got to get flushed out. And that's exactly what's happening in the last few weeks. And we think we'll start to bounce some somewhere in March. And we'll talk a little bit about that shortly. China's banks extend record loans as companies borrow more. So the credit impulse is coming back. China credit jumps as the economy recovers. We're going to see more and more of that. That's key to the recovery. Also, look at their money supply continues to grow. Like I said, they started early last year. It didn't matter because the country was locked down until basically here. Now the money supply continues to grow and the country's opening. Uh, I think the 5% GDP for this year is that is going to be conservative and uh, and we'll see how that plays out. Next, Chinese IPOs are coming back to the U.S. That's a good sign. Those have to be approved. They're being approved. Fund managers are rushing into emerging stock, uh, market stocks and, and uh, slowly cutting cash. Uh, we'll talk about that because people are worried, wait, China's the most crowded trade. That means that we missed it. Well, you probably did miss it uh, if you weren't buying in October and adding to your positions. Uh, but you did, you missed it short term. 
When we got up to 120, we talked about we got to flush out this new money, the weak hands. We're in that process right now, and I think the next move is going to run right through 120 up to the 140, 160 early, uh, 140, 160 level on BABA, and that's when all the people who bought at 120 get flushed out at 100 or 95 are going to miss the move up to 140, 160, and they're going to buy again up there, and then they're going to get flushed back before the final move up. So um, it's just it's just how it works. I'm not trying to predict anything. These are just normal psychological processes, and you just experience thousands and thousands of instances, and sooner or later it just becomes like a regular roadmap. Um, okay, next. China stock slide puts hedge funds crowded hedge funds crowded trade at risk. This is the shakeout we've been talking about. Next, China declared freezes over with Australia's trade chief. It looks like Blinken and the Chinese guy are going to meet on the sidelines at the next meeting in the coming weeks, despite the air balloons or whatever the hell was going on. And um, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Michael Burry and David Tepper snapped up Alibaba during the fourth quarter. David Tepper is an absolute hero of mine. He's buying distress. Michael Burry, it's nice to see. He goes for deep value. So uh, that's that. China's G urged stronger measures so, so uh, to boost domestic demand. We're going to see those in size in a few weeks in March when they do the National Congress and they roll out their consumption stimulus plans. And that's probably when we'll see the next uh, um, beginning, the beginning of the next rally. Ant Group brings Alipay payment service to Australia in bet on post-pandemic travel in Asia. So they continue to grow. We own a third of that as Baba shareholders. And now this is what I was referring to with the move into bonds versus equities. Uh, also, here, where they are most underweight equities relative to bonds, more underweight equities relative to bonds than they were in the pandemic lows, more underweight equities relative to bonds than they were in the great financial crisis lows in March of 2009. So while BlackRock is saying, you know, all the lemmings are rushing into bonds. Uh, we know that uh, taking the other side of the trade will, will probably prove to be the right way to go. And we're going to talk about why in the article of the week. This is from our, our uh, my friend over at RBC. Uh, weekly seasonality since 2000. What that's pointing to is the next three weeks tend to be weak. Now, we're set up like that. So that could be the case. However, the first quarter and the second quarter of the third year of the presidential cycle, which is this year, are the two strongest quarters in the four-year presidential cycle. So while the next two weeks seasonally is skewed to the downside, in the case of a pre-presidential election year, the strength of the first quarter, which is the strongest quarter of all four years, uh, can sometimes override that normal tendency. So you've got some crosswinds here. I uh, wouldn't be surprised if we got a little weakness, but at the same time, the pain trade is up and, and we'll go into that. The next thing I wanted to cover here, for those of you worried about uh, China becoming the most crowded trade in the last two months in the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey, what we found is with U.S. tech, 
when that became the most crowded trade in January or February of 2018, it became the most crowded trade and it stayed the most crowded trade for over four years from January 2018 to January 2022. That Those are these pink lines. Long tech uh, fang was basically the most crowded trade for four straight years. And what you'll see if you go through this step by step is the ones that are short duration most crowded trades are like commodities or currencies. Uh, they get worked out pretty quickly. You know, here with Long Oil made it for like four months and then it was done. Long dollar, you know, eight months. And then, um, but equities, when you get a, a regime change in equities, you have a tendency to have some longer duration. And I think we're going to, I don't know if it's four years, but I think two to four years, we could see long China equities, long emerging markets uh, start to be more and more of the most crowded trade on and off every every single month for some time as people crowd crowd into them. So that's something to keep in mind. Next, the article of the week is where is maximum pain and stock market and sentiment results. So uh, here we have a lovely picture of a fight between the Rangers and the Flames. Uh, number eight, I'm not a Rangers fan, so I don't know who number eight is. I'm a Devils fan. I, I grew up in Jersey. You can take the kid out of Jersey, but you can't take Jersey out of the kid. Uh, yesterday, I joined Paul Vigna on public.com to discuss my latest views. So you can view that here. That's where you can find the video. Despite a weekend of swim meets for our girls, they did phenomenally well. More zone cuts, the whole thing. We decided to pull together a last-minute Super Bowl party for a few friends and families at the house. Uh, my friend Bill was over and asked me a question that sparked the following line of thought. Tom, what are your thoughts on constructing a bond ladder with short-term rates so high? My immediate instinct is to look for the risk. Where can you get hurt? I told him it's interesting you bring that up because everyone has moved in that direction of late. And you saw it with the BlackRock guy. You saw it with the Bank of America fund manager survey. Everyone is crowding into the same trade. And when I see that happening, I say, where can you get hurt? So... If rates go up higher than expected, you have a temporary decline in the price of your bonds, but it doesn't matter as they mature in less than a year. If yields compress, the price of your bonds goes up before maturity seems like a no-brainer. Here's where the pain is hidden. Number one, when you buy those bonds at 4.5%, inflation still at 6 you have a negative real return of 1.5%, which basically means your purchasing power erodes by one and a half percent. So at the end of the year, if you bought a hundred thousand dollars of T bills, by the end of the year, you've got ninety-eight thousand five hundred dollars of purchasing power when you used to have a hundred thousand dollars of purchasing power. So number two, and this is where all the pain is hidden, and no one's really paying attention to this. While the masses quote want to get paid to wait in bonds until the storm has come and gone, everyone's waiting for this storm. That's why they would want to be in bonds. They may be missing, missing the big joke. And the big joke is that the market has already discounted the storm that they're waiting for. So they're going to be waiting for Godot. Uh, they, the market discounted that storm last year. And while earnings may come down a tad more in the short term, the discounting mess mechanism that is the stock market priced it in six to nine months ahead of time as it does every single cycle. And we've covered this chart at least 10 times in the three months when we were pounding the table to buy in October and then again in December when you got the pullback the second half, that earnings bottom before 
this uh, I'm sorry, the stock market bottoms, S&P 500 bottoms six to nine months before earnings bottom. So maybe earnings keep ticking down for another, you know, three, it could, you know, as, as long into the second quarter, six to nine months, they bottom out, you know, May, June, somewhere in that period. But the market already bottomed in October. And by the time earnings bottom, the market could be back at new highs. So if pain then the pain then is being in quote safe secure bonds waiting for a storm that's already passed. What do you do if you wake up in six months and the S&P has run to 4,500, 4,600, 4,700, 4,800? You'll have missed another 15 to 20% move in equities. And why do I say another? Because most people sold in the hole in October when we were pounding the table and already missed the first 18.5%. Errors of omission are acceptable. If you were down because there was no place for you to hide last year and it was one of the four worst year for stocks and bonds in a hundred years, that's a hundred percent understandable. So you were temporarily down. You didn't sell in the hole. Now you're coming back. You're going to be at, you know, a new high before you know it. And that's fine. You know, if you were extra smart, you were actually adding to the position in the hole when we were pounding the table. But errors of omission are okay, as long as you didn't take emotional abrupt action in the hole. Errors of commission, however, are unacceptable and can be deadly. If you sold in the hole in October or didn't take advantage of the opportunity to add to, to quality positions that were down, you may never get that opportunity back. Moves of 18.5% in three months are very rare in a career. Moves of 40% in 12 months are rarer still. So if you're in T-bills and the market presses higher against the wall of worry, missing a 30 to 40% move in 12 months is unlikely to be recovered without taking excessive risk. And usually you just double the, double the problem. Uh, unfortunately, these big moves usually only come out of large corrections like we had in 2022. If you've been listening to our podcast video cast for some time, you took advantage of the weakness this past fall and have had an amazing move off the lows. If you delegated to other managers per the Bank of America survey below, they may still be on the wrong side of the trade and switch to bonds at the exact wrong time. Not only did they switch in the hole, but they've doubled down on the error of late. We saw it in the most recent survey we're going to look at. Here's all you need to know from this week's Bank of America fund manager survey. Number one, they moved into bonds and out of equities. Meanwhile, we had one of the greatest starts to the year in the last six weeks, and they missed it all. Two, uh, fund manager surveys not quite signaling a position as a sell catalyst. Why? Because they're the most overweight to to uh, bonds uh, than they versus equities. So the net overweight equities minus the net overweight bonds. They're still overweight bonds. Uh, as they were in the pandemic lows and the great financial crisis lows. So there's nowhere near exuberance like they were before the market started selling off at the beginning of 2022 uh, or at July 2007. When we got back up to here, when they're overweight this much equities relative to bonds, then we'll take a quick hard look. But that can also persist for a couple of years. As you saw in 2003, it can continue to grind higher as you saw it's a better indicator at the lows like we're seeing right now that it's time to buy for a, a multi-year rally ahead. Uh, and there's still tremendous amount of value. But that value, you're starting to see these things get bid up. I pray to God that Ryan Dietrich's um, uh, week February, second half of February plays out. Because while there's still a lot to do, 
I know what's going to happen in the next four to six weeks is you're going to see all these things. And I got about a list of about 12 that are sitting there waiting to go. They're just going to go overnight and then you're not going to be able to catch them. And I don't buy up. Uh, so we got to get this new money to work quickly. We got to take advantage of this. And then the first half, it's, it's going to continue to be strong. Like we said, everyone was saying the end of the year was going to be weak. Then you get a rally. And then you, uh, then you'd collapse in the first half of the year and then you'd rally the second half of the year. They've been completely wrong. Uh, the triple break putt went into the sand trap. And now, uh, you're getting the strong first half that we were calling for. And I think when everyone gets excited and starts to get in in the second half is when you're going to have no gains. It's just going to grind sideways. You'll probably get a quick 8% correction just to punish the people, the Johnny come latelys. Uh, and then you'll just grind sideways for the whole second half of the year. So the money's, gonna be made in the next few months and uh obviously already been a monster year off for 2022 vintage names but the 2023 vintage names they're gonna start going before we know it so we want to take advantage congratulations to arthur who came in he's going to take advantage and i know there are three of you uh get, getting ready to to move in uh at the beginning of the month so we're excited about that Next, uh, bear market rally. So most of the managers believe this is a bear market rally, which is why uh, I pointed to the max pain being up because everyone's positioned that this is going to come back down and they're going to have another chance to buy. And max pain is going to be that you just keep pushing higher, 45, 46, 100. And that's when everyone's going to chase and that's when you're going to get your first correction. So here's the seasonality that Ryan Dietrich put out. It may be overcome because of the strongest quarter of the four-year presidential cycle. We'll see. I think, you know, looking at this, I don't spend a lot of time, but here's an inverse head and shoulders nonsense. Measured move would be 500 over 4,100 would be 4,600. Um, the other thing is you could get a retest of the downtrend line. So maybe that would put you at 3,950. Worst case scenario, if the bears are right. I think more likely the worst you're going to get is a retest of this shoulder line, which you already kind of got. Maybe you grind for a little bit, but I think the pain is pushing higher in the first half of the year. And that's why I want to be fully invested as, as fast as possible for those accounts that are not yet. Uh, markets always rebound on high multiples due to trough earnings, not low multiples. Every commentator you see on TV has been telling you not to buy equities the entire ride up because multiples are too high and earnings have to come down. Now that 2022 earnings are done, the market is starting to look forward to 2024. What are 2024 estimates today? Well, they're $250 on the S&P still, which means we're trading at about 16 and a half times forward estimates. Just as the market discounted the decline for 2023 earnings in 2022, it will discount the rebound for 2024 earnings in 2023, six to nine months before it happens, which is what? Nine months before next year is March. That's when the game starts, folks. So so that's what's happening. Check out the equity risk premium below. We'll cover that from Seth. A further note, we did get the recession that everyone's looking for in 2020. If we did get the recession that everyone's looking for in 2023, it would be the first time in history that one came in a pre-election year. This is from Luthold via Seth. Not surprisingly, here's an electoral cycle uh, oh, of the 20 recessions that occurred since the formation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, none began in a year preceding a presidential election. So 
Here's Seth's view on the uh, equity risk premium. Earnings over price is 5.4%. Subtract the 10-year yield of 3.7. You have an equity risk premium of 1.7, which is well below the average since 1977 is 2.5. You can see here. Uh, so the, the S&P is sniffing out that estimates are too far too low. And if I'm right about China, the second largest economy in the world, growing at 5% plus in 2023, that's going to hugely benefit the entire world and earnings are far too low. And if I'm right that this is a short counter trend rally in the US dollar and the dollar stays subdued, that's going to be an additional benefit to the S&P 500 that's not in the models of yet. Uh, why is it not in the models? Because it, it happened abruptly in the last couple of months. It People don't believe it until it's been in place for some time. Uh, China, as we've said on the last two podcast video casts, when Alibaba hit around $120, everyone finally started piling in after it was up 100% off the lows. Maximum pain then was to shake out all of the late money. It is happening now. I'm hopeful we can get a print in the mid-90s to buy for new and add for existing clients that have capacity because at those levels, the 120 late money will be sufficiently flushed out, the weak sisters as we like to say. The next leg higher will not stop at 120. Uh, more likely, it will force those weak hands back in at the 140 to 160 range before the next flush. We have Alibaba earnings next week. Expect them to be bad as the country was closed in Q4. The key will be guidance moving forward. As for China equities as a whole, including Alibaba, which is one of the highest weights, markets are likely to bounce back in March as the National People's Congress will guide the markets with more policy support in the form of consumption stimulus. Alibaba is the toll taker for consumption in China and more relaxed real estate measures. In the meantime, we have to get rid of some of those quote Johnny come latelys before we resume higher. And when I say Johnny come latelys, I refer to the most crowded trade long China equities and the flows that we discussed earlier in the call. This is not a major concern as when U.S. tech held the most crowded traded spot. It did so for years, not weeks or months. We already covered that. And in the meantime, Chinese data are all beginning their ascent into the in the right direction toward 5% plus GDP growth in 2023. Just a handful of weeks ago, the country was completely locked down. The patient China had a two-year heart attack, which was a lockdown. Give him some time to walk around the hallway with his IV on wheels before you send it and find his sea legs. Let the stimulus work through the system before you send him on home in his sports car at 110 miles an hour, which is 5% plus GDP growth. So you can see the numbers here. Um, stock rally is being followed by earnings. Are also estimates are also coming up. And by the way, you know we we talk about Cooper Standard a lot of time. Don't pay attention to Cooper Standard. If the industry production numbers go up, the operating leverage is going to play out to five dollars and eighty cents a share. So I'm not worried about what the company says about this and that. All I'm worried about is the in, it, this is a macro. This is a micro play with operating. It's a levered play on a macro theme which is that the cars are too old, the demand has been pent up, the dealers will give incentives, and you're going to see massive amount of pent up buying in the next few years and production because the managed scarcity is gone, that the uh, Asian producers are going to flood the market with the low-end cars that the U.S. producers have been reluctant to make, and they'll have no choice but to blink just like they had to when Musk cut, cut prices, they had to follow suit. So... Um, this from our friends over at MRB Partners. And you see here the margin. You also see the groups 
that have the biggest earnings recovery are going to be consumer discretionary. Who benefits from that? Alibaba, consumer discretionary. What else do they have? Communication services. Hello, AliCloud. And, and, and so that's a big deal. Uh, the PMIs are now pointing in the right direction. Uh, credit impulse is starting to grow. We did start to look at bank loans earlier in the call. The credit, credit impulse is a big deal. This will turn up and we'll see the game is back on. So we got to get through this counter trend rally in the dollar. The counter trend rally is predicated on now. The Fed has to raise two more times, but that second time wouldn't be till June. So it may only be one more time because if that owner's equivalent rent collapses in the way we think it will by June, they might have cover to then say, all right, we're at five. We've done enough. Let's see how this goes. We can always raise a couple more before the end of the year. Let's pause now like you've seen, you know, Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, some of the other, um, I think Canada, Canada pause. So uh, many of the others are going. We just need the data to support. Here's a nice note I received from one of my listeners who got into CPS when we put it out on the podcast in May uh from brian hi tom love the podcast been listening religiously for about six to eight months your call on cooper couldn't have been more spot on and i i've about three x my and my father's money with that call so congratulations on that uh strong auto steals were an important driver of the monthly data you see here uh supply supply chain dislocations ease the semiconductor problem is no longer a problem like we said a year ago, the shortage of today is the glut of tomorrow. I think we have hit peak inventories for PC and server chips, uh, uh, and autos are just starting to flow. So that's a good thing. You see autos up 5.9% month-on-month change. That's new autos. Everyone said no one's going to buy new autos. Well, guess what they're buying because they have no choice. And with the labor force participation rate ticking up, and we think that trend's going to persist when you have more people going back to work, you also need more cars to get there, which is, a, which is a good thing. Cooper Standard reports tonight after the bell and will host their conference call on Friday morning. Whether Q4 earnings came in good or bad is immaterial. The only number that matters is whether industry production starts to move back towards 2017 peak levels over the next few years. You can click here to see the original thesis. Our base case with the average car at its oldest age in history, 13.1, is that this is a high probability outcome. For the big U.S. OEMs who think they are going to hold back supply for higher margins, like they got away with from 2018 to 2022, good luck to you. With semiconductors now flowing in, Hyundai, Nissan, Toyota, Kia, and others will flood the U.S. market and start to take share. First at the low end, which the U.S. OEMs are not even producing, then mid, then high end that the U.S. OEMs have dominated. The days of managed scarcity are now over alongside with the supply shortage. Get ready for the days of nonstop TV ads, dealer incentives, fuller lots, and low APR deals coming nonstop to a theater near you. So this is where we are. This is where we're going in global light vehicle production. And, you know, the estimates are that we get there by 2024. That might be optimistic, but even 2025 uh, we, we estimate CPS can earn between five to eight dollars plus per share. If these EV percentages keep going up, they make more per EV, 20% more than they do for ICE. It could be even more. I mean, you could be at 850 a share, but applying a trough 10 times or a peak 20 times historical multiple implies meaningful upside from here. Our view on tonight's Q4 earnings report. Pray that they're terrible so the stock comes in meaningfully to buy more, but don't hold your breath because it may not happen. I, I think 
that you know the time to buy was at maximum pessimism in May June uh, when we did and our basis is 550. So uh, now on to the shorter term view for the general market. The AAII sentiment result bullish percent tick down to 34.1% from 37%, 37.5% last week. Bearish percent ticked up to 28.8 from 25. Sentiment is warming up, but it could run even hotter. As you can see, it was up to 56 uh, during the last rally, and we're nowhere near that yet. Uh, CNN Fear and Greed was up, I think, a point from 73 to 74. So sentiment's getting a bit hotter. Uh, that would line up with the second half of February being weaker, and we get a pullback. Uh, but I'm open-minded that maybe we don't because everyone's looking for it and we're in that first, you know, strongest quarter of the four-year cycle. And the National Association of Active Investment Managers, let's see if that changed at all, was at 85% equity exposure, which is still a lot lower than they were during the last peak over 100%. So let's just take a look because they print on... Uh, they print on Thursday afternoon. All right, while that waits, uh, here is also from RBC showing uh, that weakness period that Ryan Dietrich was talking about. And here we are. So it's 81. So it came down a little bit this week, which is fine because, you know, opinion follows trend. This is the long duration of the uh, long tech tech stocks. I think we're going to see a similar situation with long Chinese and long emerging markets after we get through this flush. Earnings for the week industrials top 30 weights for 2023 came in 2.94. So we're getting towards everyone's kind of kitchen sinking it now, taking out, setting expectations low. So then in the second half, we start to look for 2024. And then energy, which, again, we've we've not been interested. People have been asking for weeks and weeks, what do you think about energy? Especially before the end of the year. Every talking head was pitching energy. We were saying, look at the earnings. They're going to have the worst earnings. Uh, consumer discretionary tech and consumer uh, communication services. And, and those have been the top three performers year to date. But everyone wanted energy. And look what happened. Their earnings power fell. Top 30 weights of exploration and production down 6.25% in the last 60 days. So that's the story there. Uh, moving on to important economic data before we get to the Ask Me Anything questions. The CPI we covered, again, they're coming down. That's the key that matters. Went came down a little slower than we expected. Retail sales were through the roof, led by autos and food service, and so on and so forth. So people basically don't want to change their lifestyle. They're, they're going through their savings. They still have $1.4 trillion of excess savings. But rather than stop spending, they're just going back to work. More and more people are going back to work. And that's a good thing because that will keep wage inflation subdued. And in that case, uh, the game will continue to be on. So the podcast is over. Now we're going to do a bunch of Ask Me Anything questions. And there are a lot of good ones. So if you like the Ask Me Anything questions, stick around. Many people I'm finding are saying that that's where they get the most value because I guess uh, many people are asking what they had on their minds to start with. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, Brian Maida, Tom, what do you make of Buffett's uncharacteristically quick sale of Taiwan Semiconductor? Does it concern you from a risk management standpoint as it relates to China invasion of Taiwan? Uh, so that was the obvious question, and we covered that very simply. If he had an edge on China invading Taiwan, uh, which Buffett confirmed that they think that's a long, long, long way off, uh, he'd be selling a hell of a lot more than Taiwan Semiconductor, He'd be, and he would not be buying more Apple. 
so uh, I think what you have there is that was a Todd or a Ted trade. They made 65% in three months and they rang the register because basically the stock was already pricing in perfection and we're still in uh, glut mode. So why not ring the register? You know, if you look at IRR, 65% in three months, you annualize that. It's like, okay, ring the register. Not something Buffett would ever do, but he's got to delegate because he's not going to live forever. And that's what these, that's how these guys think. So why do we think, why from Nick Saltarelli, why do we think we're seeing overcrowded long China, but no real rally in the last three weeks if people are clearly bidding it? So that data is on a lag basis. So everyone chased up. Now you've got the marginal retail buyers that don't have the same type of buying power that institutions have. This is the normal way it crowds. It stalls out. It pulls back, flushes everyone out, and then, it'll, and then it will continue. So uh, good question, but that's where we are. Next is Jason Patel. Good morning, Tom. Just started to look into this. Dropped 50% overnight due to a significant drop in revenue guidance resulting from a loss of a single large customer. Microsoft, I believe, that made 30 to 40% of the revenue. However, it sounds like the projected orders from this one customer dropped versus actually losing them as a customer. So management brought guidance down based on expectation of a weaker cloud market going forward in 2023. It is a data infrastructure growth play. They sell next-gen IP DSP chiplets, line cards, optical DSP AEC. They fill an interesting niche in the data center market and have some unique IP. Not sure yet how competitive their niche is and how much of a moat they would have around their products or if it is a win a few big contracts, long-term service agreements with big tech before their competition. Might be an interesting one to keep an eye on. All right, so let's take a look at it. Um, CRDO. Okay, so the first thing I see here is I would never touch it because I don't have five or ten years of data. I, I have no idea how management is operating through long cycles. So for me, it's a pass, but let's just take a look at the data uh, and see if we can be a little more helpful than that. So we've covered that, and I'm, I'm not saying that like that's new information. We cover that almost every single week in terms of how we look at things. Uh, we go for the fat pitches. I, and by the way, the other thing is probably 80% of the – AMA questions, we say, you know, it's good, but we would pass. And that's not because we don't think you're smart. Many of these ideas are super smart uh, and brilliant and will work uh, and do work. We just know what our knitting is and where we can make money with predictability. Uh, and that's where we focus. So we only swing, swing for the super fast pitches. And if something gets away from us, you know, when we were amateurs, we're like, oh, my God, we missed that. As professionals, it's like there's so many opportunities all the time that it's better to go for the sure things. So this thing's losing money the last three years. It's It's got three years of track record. Um, let's see. It's negative cash flow from operations. This is, this is the antithesis of what we look for in a stock. Uh, negative return on capital. So right now, I mean, this is an easy one for us. It's a no. It doesn't mean it won't work. So it's down 50. Maybe it'll bounce. You get an 80% bounce. You're lucky. I would take I would take your chips and go away. The other thing is, uh, let's see. It's headquartered in San Jose. Deals exclusively with China. I, I don't like these small companies that are China-related. If it's China-related, it's got to be the biggest and the best. And that's why we own Alibaba. I don't want to mess with the small stuff. So for me, too risky. 
I hope it works for you. It doesn't mean it won't work for you. It could very well. But Jason, thank you for sending that. That was a, a good idea. Paul Falcone, another great article, and I'm looking forward to the Videocast podcast. It's a weekly tradition for me as I ride the bike or run on the treadmill after Richard Weiser Happier went up on Wall Street. It's a great read, really simplifies everything and aligns with my natural thought process. As always, thank you for your work. I'll, sh I'll share with my friends as much as I can. Have fun. At oh, okay. That was just a compliment. Thank you very much, Paul. I'm grateful for that. Nicholas Perez. Uh, hello, Thomas. Greetings from Chile, South America. First of all, I wanted to thank you for the content you generated. It's helped me a lot in my journey in the value investing world. Question is, if do you see value in natural gas? It's fallen 75% from its peak in August. Would like to know your opinion. Uh, we did cover this in recent weeks. My general view is not yet. We're getting close, but you know, you don't, you don't have a heart attack and get up and run a marathon the next day and immediately rebound. It's going to take some time to build a base is our view. Now the natural gas stocks may start to discount that sooner. And I think last week we said, you know, if we, you put a gun to our head and we had to get energy exposure, which we don't, so we, we, we don't worry about it. Um, we own some Comstock resources and we own some range resources in the space from much lower levels. Uh, so those would be the ones that I would look at. But, you know, our basis on range is $4.01. So it's a kind of different story. Um, so nothing for us to really do there. But I think Comstock could actually work from here even well before. This is Jerry Jones, the guy who owns the Dallas Cowboys. I bet on him every single day of the week. Uh, we own it at a much lower basis. Uh, so, you know, we are, but I think even at this level, if someone said you have to increase your exposure to energy tomorrow, I would buy a lot more Comstock resources since I don't have to do that. And there's a lot more other things to do. I'll stick with those. But for those of you looking that that's where I would play it. But I think natural gas is going to take some, some time to stabilize Bob Johnson. Uh, got another question that I believe your listeners might be interested. You recently mentioned equity risk premium on public.com and I was reading an old Buffett shareholder letters. Suddenly hit me this question hasn't been raised before. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Buffett indicator specifically to the current market where it's around 170% and has been above 120% since 2016? I think he's referring to... Um, Total public securities, I think it's Russell 3000 to GDP. And I have, to, oh, P.S. I shared your podcast with five people. Thank you very much. By the way, if you like what we're sharing and you're getting value, the best compliment you could pay me, please share it with one or two or more friends. Uh, and, you know, if you're getting value, just say, hey, I, I know you follow markets. Uh, I know you love markets as much as I do. I found this to be very helpful. I thought you might too, and just leave it at that. And they'll listen or they won't, but uh, that that's really helpful, and that's how it really grows. And and we continue to do this not only for our clients who pay us for this, uh, but for people who don't do business with us. We're happy to continue to make it available. If you make it worth our while, please share it. Uh, please please do what you can on that front. Uh, now, uh, with that all said. I'd love to get your insights on how retail institutions are evaluating, reacting to this in terms of their equity risk premium assessments. As I'm seeing the example from a prominent YouTube finance influencer calling this out and recommending to his audience to stay on the sidelines. This is complete nonsense. 
the problem is, is first off, Buffett hasn't referenced it in 22 years for a reason because it doesn't work. Number two, uh, since Sarbanes-Oxley in the early 2000s after the tech wreck, that made it much harder for companies to go public earlier in their life cycle. You have a much smaller supply of publicly traded companies and the IPOs going public are already enormous. So you don't have a lot of smaller companies coming public and it's completely skewed, which is why it hasn't worked since 2020. So since uh, 2000. So it's a nonsense indicator. It doesn't work. Throw it out. Buffett has. Uh, Alex, Alex Bauer. Uh, looking forward to the com. Okay, he's coming to the money show. Uh, okay, made money on CPS and Baba. Great. Okay, so he wants to meet up. Terrific. Brian McLean. Oh, okay, yeah, this was the guy, by the way. Brian McLean, love the podcast. I've been listening religiously for six to eight months. You're calling Cooper. Couldn't have been more spot on. I've about 3x my and my father's money with, with that call. I was wondering your thoughts on Rolls-Royce. They've had a bumpy few years, but their car sales hit car sales hit record highs, and they seem to be investing in the right places. Okay, so they're not in the car business anymore. All they do is um, airplane engine servicing, and they have SMRs, the nuclear reactors is a Mignana story. Uh, new management shakeup also adds to the appeal if you can get the ship. What are your thoughts on a small position for European ADR? Uh, we own it in a small position. Um, this is a smaller position in the portfolio. So we run a very concentrated top half of the book. You know, top three or four positions can be as much as 50% of the portfolio. And then below that, we have, you know, we could have another 20 positions at, you know, 2 3%. Uh, that, that is one of them. Um This, basically, this is very much like Cooper Standard. All you need to do is watch airplane hours. And now that China is open, this is a leverage play on airplane hours. Okay? So, you know, um, this has moved up quite a bit. Uh, we bought it last year, late last year. We actually did briefly reference it on the podcast but we didn't spend a lot of time on it because it's not a major position uh at this time uh that doesn't mean that won't change but this is very cyclical like cooper standard the british government is not going to let it go bk they've taken out billions of costs uh so we think this has a chance to to uh to work in a material way, but you know, there's still a lot to, to work out. So with this one, uh, I like it, but even though it could be a multi-bagger from our basis, uh, it's not a high conviction multi-bagger that we would size it up. Like, you know, uh, Cooper, we started with 13% of the portfolio and you know, it's up three and a half X, uh, three and a half times, but pretty much. So it's it's so far it's a different story. We we can't size this according to that because it's not as much of a no brainer. But the concept is now you're going to have more engines, more air hours. The engine servicing is going to hockey stick with China, with India, with everything, with all these emerging markets now. Also, 
finally getting rid of COVID that didn't have the best vaccines, uh, we do like it. But there there are problems embedded, and that's why we've sized it accordingly because it, it it's not as much of a no-brainer as Cooper Standard was, but I do like the idea, and, uh, and that's why we were buying it and uh, not really talking a lot about it because it's relatively small. So thanks for that one. Okay, next one is Aiken Omisakan, Omisakin from the UK. Tom really enjoyed listening to your channel and never missed any episodes since stumbling on it in mid-2022. Thank you for the great content and teachings. What do you think of Zoom Communications? It is in the communications services sector, I believe. No debt, stable, gross margins. Seems to match the metrics you look out for, only that it just goes as far as 2017, I think. Um, yeah, gosh, this is like an ARC stock, a famous ARC stock. So, but it might be despondent enough, not ARC. Let's go to Zoom. <laughs> kind of one in the same. Let's see. I don't know. I, I don't get too many Zoom invites anymore. It's mostly, you know, Teams from Microsoft, Skype for the TV interviews, um, Google Meets. I'm trying to think. I get a couple Zooms from time to time, but, you know, it's mostly other services now. So there's there's more and more competition. Let's just take a look at how the business is doing. I'm sure it's slowed down a little bit. By the way, just out of experience, when something round trips like this, this reminds me a lot of... Um, that pot stock that starts with a T. It went up to like $300 and then it came down. They take a long time to recover if they ever do. But let, let's see what the financials are doing on this. Okay, so they had their huge growth from pandemic. Went from $600 million to $4 billion in a year. And now they're 4.3 in the last 12 months. So now they're kind of flatlining. Um, they are earning money. So what are they earning? About 229 a share. Stocks trading at 78. So 35 times. Uh, you got to have a very good growth rate to substantiate. A lot of free cash flow. Free cash flows come down in the past 12 months. Still pretty strong. What about the margins? Gross margins are about stable. They're not peak like 2019, but they're still stable. I mean, 75% gross margin. So now it becomes the growth rate to multiple Generating return on capital, return on equity, high gross margin. It looks good for now. The question is, is what is the competitive? And that's why investing is not a science. These, these are just screens to like, do I now do three weeks of work on this thing? And do I listen to all the conference calls? Do I read all the annual reports? Um, let me just see what the... I don't like it that the top line is flatlining because once these things stop growing, like if you got, 
if you had three and a half billion revenues two years out instead of 4.3, um, even if it was generating cash, all the institutions would abandon it. So, you know, you basically need to see it drop revenues down to two and then start to pick back up to three, and that's when you want to buy it. But I just want to see what the five-year estimated growth rate is right now. All right, while we wait for this, because I've got 100 tabs open and it's slow, let's go on to Jack Zhang. Oh, hey, Thomas, thanks for checking Yala last time. Share price has gone up since. It's still under my fair value, so I'm going to hold this guy until it goes over. have another company uh, that I thought I could get you to say take a flyer on it like you did with Yala. It's the largest company in a beaten down industry that's a sustainable moat. company is Anhui Conch Cement. Okay, let's take a look at this one. I don't know what's wrong with Yahoo. It always gets sticky like this. All right, so let's look at uh, the cement company while we wait. A-H-C-H-Y. Okay, so this is a Chinese company. Uh, I don't take company and country risk, so I know this can work. I'm just not going to be participating in it, but let me just pull it A-H-C-H-Y. Okay, so it's down 50% off of its highs. Um, revenues have fallen off in the last 12 months. Remember, the stimulus in China is going to be consumption-led, not infrastructure-led. So you look at their revenues are down from 148. Let's see. Let's get this in dollars. 15 billion from 23 billion down to 15 billion in the last 12 months. I don't like that. Um, they are earning a lot of money. But they also have a lot of shares, 62 cents a share, cash flow statement, cash flow positive from operations, that's good. Free cash flow was negative this year. They had a huge drop off in revenues. Uh, they're generating huge return on capital and equity. I mean, this is okay, provided it's not a fraud. I mean, you know, these smaller Chinese companies, you really run a risk that one day you wake up and the books are cooked. And, you know, you got a problem. So maybe I'm a little too skeptical on that front. But um, I I personally, you know, revenues being down that much and the stock is only down, you know, now less than 
I, it, for me, it's a hard pass. I want to bet on consumption in China right now because that's what their government's telling me to do, and they dic dictate how things go over there. Steve Frampton. Hi, Tom. I've listened to you for over a year now talking about China and did buy FXI, the China Large Cap ETF. Okay, I never said to buy that one, but a few days ago, I finally made a model for BABA, immediately switched from X FXI to BABA as I suddenly understood fully what you've been talking about. Okay, can't believe it took me so long. Fortunately, it's just getting started. Happy to be in on this BABA bandwagon. I'm wondering about your outlook on natural gas and its stocks. Okay, good. So we just covered that. Some of them are looking interesting. The only one I'd buy today at today's price, I mean, we own two at much lower levels. I'd buy Comstock today, Comstock Resources today if I had to uh, get more energy exposure, but I don't, so I won't. Um, love what you're doing. Reading Lynch and Buffett is one thing, but watching their principles put into action is something entirely, something else entirely. Thanks so much for your patience and time, Stephen. Great. Thank you, Stephen. And John Weller. Love the weekly video cast and longtime watcher. I see your references to sector rotation on video cast 173 at 48 minutes in and wish to learn more. I've used Finviz groups tab for sector and industry then used a one year review and I can see the bottom groups. However, is there an open resource as I can use to obtain the graph used at 48 minutes and market sector cycles at 452 minutes in? Best regards, John W. in West Michigan. Um, yeah, so that was from my buddy at RBC as the, uh, as the country song goes, I've got friends in low places and I'm sure they, they feel, uh, the same reciprocation and we, we revel in that. Uh, I think stock charts has something called like RSG or sector rotation, but the answer is no. Some of the institutional stuff you can only get through institutions, and like with the Bank of America Fund Manager Survey, I can only put out summaries. I can't put out the whole thing. Um, but if you go to stock charts and you look for sector rotation or just go to help and they'll help you find that RSG, it shows you where sectors are in the cycle and that can be somewhat helpful. I don't use that, but because uh, I just know where we are in cycles and kind of know where, where we are looking at uh, what's going in the, on in the market every single day. So the last thing we have to do, which there we go, Zoom. I just want to understand the growth rate there so I can fully answer that gentleman's question. And then we'll wrap it up. I, I personally wouldn't, I wouldn't participate in Zoom, even though it's cheap today just because I think it's decelerating and I, I want to get a sense of where the bottom is before I get involved and I just see too much competition. I don't see a special moat. I don't think it's become a verb. Uh, let's get on a Zoom call. Let's let's get on a Teams call. I'll Skype you. I, I, don't, I, I don't think they're the Kleenex of the space. I think it's kind of a commodity. It'll probably be a good value stock at one point. I think more... I, I'll tell you what, it's kind of like the natural gas chart. So where I would get interested after a move like this is um, it's going to, it's going to take some time to build a base after such a big crash. So I would wait probably six to 12 months, see what the financials look like, be perfectly willing to miss it 
I mean, maybe it could go from here. I, I mean, I'd like to see it. I, I see what you're saying. I, there's, there's just, okay, so simply put, there's not enough data for me to see whether this has a mode or not, so I'm going to take a pass. It doesn't mean it won't work. I kind of like your thinking process. I would take another look at it if six or 12 months from now, you know, it's it's run up to 100 and it's just kind of building this pattern and people have kind of left it for dead. And I see it's still doing $4 billion of revenue, generate, generating, you know, a billion of free cash flow, trading at 10 or 15 times. Uh, with a 15% uh, five-year expected growth rate and the mode is proven, then I'd get involved here. It's just a balance trade. I, I have no edge. So I, I don't think that's really why I wouldn't participate, even though it could work. And I think all of these are really good ideas that could work, may work, but I may not participate in them for the reasons that I've given. So keep the great ideas coming. I think it's helping a lot of other people listening. And for now, we're going to wrap up. We'll be back next time, same time next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, make it a great one. Bye for now.